0: I'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then 11 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, it is to consist of fine flour. He is to pour olive oil on it, put frankincense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it, along with all its frankincense. And will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar. A fire offering of a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord. No grain offering that you present to the Lord is to be made with yeast. For you are not to burn any yeast or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings.
1: Thank you, Peter. Well, church, my name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sound City, and I have the privilege of bringing the message from Leviticus 2, and this morning, as people were coming in and preparing to serve and coming to worship, I had a lot of people asking me, kind of like amused, if I'd ever preached through Leviticus before. I think people are, uh, I think it's kind of an oddity to do this. Uh, for both for preachers and for churches to, to go through the book of Levit- Leviticus and um, whether or not we reach some challenging parts which uh, i which 'm sure we will uh, it 's it's great to be reminded that all of god 's word is valuable it 's all part of god 's overarching narrative of how he has worked redemption for us, and I actually think that the sacrifices and offerings Uh, will do a lot for us in in helping us understand the depth of our worship, the depth of Christ's sacrifice for us, and the joy that comes from responding to that. And so in light of all that, I want to kind of set us up um, for thinking about the grain offering, which is today's section from Leviticus 2, the grain offering, Uh, I want to just think for a moment how the grain offering is a perfect companion to the burnt offering from last week. So last week, chapter 1, Pastor Aaron taught us from uh, the burnt offering and how it is to work atonement for God's people. To bring them into right relationship. That sometimes it's sin and sometimes it's other things that separate them from God. And he provided this burnt offering to bring them back into the place where they could worship and love and respond to God's grace. Well, the grain offering then comes along as the perfect companion because the, the grain offering is an offering of worship. It is a response to all that God does and all that God provides. And so uh, just right off the bat, let's start with a quote from Longman and Garland that talks about this. It says, The burnt And grain offerings together represent two basic elements of the offerer's concerns before God. To restore and maintain one's relationship with God and to express thanks and praise for God-given blessings. That wasn't only true for the Israelites when Leviticus was given. That's true for us. We need this understanding that through Christ we have a right relationship with God and we can always have access to that free-flowing grace that keeps us in a right relationship with God. And then we also have these avenues through which we get to offer ourselves to God through, uh, as an act of worship and praise and joy and response to His grace. And so uh, let's, let's pray, and then we'll dive right into the grain offering. God, thank you for making atonement for us through Jesus. And now we can respond to you in worship and praise and thanksgiving. I pray that as we study the grain offering, you will enlighten our worship, enlighten our understanding of you, enlighten uh, just our our own offerings and giving to you. And now, Lord, would you give us clear thinking and understanding of your word that we might grow in Christ's likeness. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to start out with this idea from the grain offering, that all of God's people are invited to worship Him in joy, gratitude, and faith. All of God's people are invited to worship Him in joy, gratitude, and faith. And when we think about this kind of worship that we're invited into, uh, it's one thing to have... Of discussions about this. And that's that's really easy for churchgoers, for believers, that we just kind of keep it in the abstract. Let's talk about joy and gratitude. Let's talk about worship. But the grain offering really highlights this idea that the people of Israel got to put it into physical practice. They their worship of God was very tangible, and it was Demonstrated. And I think we need to make sure that's true for us too. That our worship that we're invited into, it doesn't just remain this kind of idea of I worship God, but in the abstract, it is very demonstrated. So let's start off with a description of the grain offering. Very, very straightforward. Uh, Peter read most of it for us. First of all, the grain offering is one of the free will offerings. It's a free will offering, which means there were not a lot of parameters as far as who must offer this, when you must offer this, certain times given, certain uh, circumstances. It was kind of just very general. And you find lots of examples through the scriptures of people bringing free will grain offerings, uh, but, but it is very broad. And, and even the very beginning says, when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, it's just this open invitation a free will offering. And then uh, let's talk about the components of the offering. First of all, we're given this idea that, uh, that the general grain offering is to be a fine flour. And to understand what this fine flour is, uh, researchers and theologians have dug and dug and dug, trying to get down to pinpoint exactly what they meant. And there are lots of different opinions. But what we can know is it was not common grain. It probably wasn't the grain that everybody was eating every day. It took various steps of processing to get to this fine grain that was valuable. So it, fine could be describing the value. It also could be describing the actual texture. But the point is it was, it was special. And it was a fine flour now, interesting to note, there's no command here for how much. It doesn't say how much you have to bring. Uh, it doesn't prescribe the quantity, but the uh, ingredients and the quality are what are described. Next, on this amount of fine flour, they were commanded to pour olive oil on top of it. And, uh, and, and that you can kind of get this idea. If you've got this container of fine flour, and then you pour olive oil on the top of it. It doesn't say to mix it in. It says pour it on top. And then they are to lay on top of it frankincense. And frankincense being a gum resin from a very small set of trees. It's very aromatic. comes from a very specific region, so it's very rare. And therefore, expensive and costly. Um, and they were to lay that on top of the offering. Uh, also, in verse thirteen, it's going to describe that it is to be seasoned with salt. Uh, in fact, uh, it says the salt of the covenant, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it doesn't doesn't describe how they're seasoning it any any specific way they're applying it. Just that it has to have the salt in there. And then, so they're bringing this to then the tabernacle. And if you missed last week's message, you need to go back and watch that online. Uh, not only did Aaron do a great job explaining the burnt offering, but he played this cool video that was a walkthrough of a replica of the tabernacle. And it really, as we're thinking about Leviticus and these various offerings, I think it's going to really help you get a picture of what's happening. So as they're bringing this grain offering into the tabernacle, then the priests are taking it and they're going to take it over to this huge bronze altar where there was a fire burning whenever they were offering sacrifices. And the priest is then going to reach into this grain offering and just pick up a handful that includes some of the flour, some of the oil and salt, and all of the frankincense. And he's going to walk over to that big bronze altar and he's going to drop it in. And that was going to burn and create a pleasing aroma to God. Then the rest of that grain offering, he's going to take over and put in the stores, and the, the Levites, the priests, are going to divide it up and share it. And they have to eat it in certain holy places, and certain of the offerings, such as this one, only the, uh, the priests could eat. Other offerings could be shared with their families, uh, but in this case, only the priests could eat that. Now, this is a portion that I really think is, is meaningful. We're going to talk about the meaning of it later. But that was the basic grain offering. But then there's this section uh, from verses 4 through verses 9 that describes cooked grain offerings. And this is really important. But in this section, it's going to describe various ways that you can, instead of just bringing the raw ingredients, you can cook Grain offerings, and and so it talks about if you're baking it in an oven, if you're frying it on a griddle, if you're deep frying, if you're making pancakes with it. Like there's lots of these different versions, but they all include the fine flour, oil, salt, and then the frankincense on top. All the ingredients stay the same. It's just raw ingredients is the basic, and then if you cook it, it goes into that uh, separate section. Now, there are two uh, prohibitions. One is yeast. You cannot have any yeast. Uh, you can also not have any honey. And uh, the word honey that's used to in that prohibition, uh, there's a little bit of, of a broader definition. We, we think of honey as the product that bees make uh, to feed their hive, and then we steal it, and the, they... They go off and cry and work themselves to death. But, but then uh, there's this other kind of broader understanding of what this could have included would be uh, this basically like fruit syrup come, that comes from uh, pressing figs or dates or other fruits to make uh, a fruit syrup that was mostly just sugar that, you could, that was shelf-stable, you could last a long time, but it would be used in cooking and baking. And we'll talk about why uh, those are prohibited in a moment. One more description about the grain offering, and that is at the end of the passage, it describes first fruits. And so, this will be uh, there are other passages that we'll see about first fruits, but when the harvest of grain was coming in, and they were to bring uh, some of the first fruits as an offering of worship and praise and thanksgiving to God, they would cut those. They would bring the, 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 the grain heads, and they would roast them a little, and then they would include uh, the salt and, the, uh, and the, uh, the, the frankincense, and the priest would do the same thing as he did with the others. He would take some of those crushed grain heads and the frankincense, and he would burn it, and then the rest could go into the stores to be divided among the Levites. So that, that, that's the basic description like, like, we could almost just stop there and sing and go home. Like, that's the grain offering. But we would be missing out on so much because there's meaning, there's significance. And then we hope to see the connection to our own lives and worship. So let's, let's dig in a little bit on the significance. First of all, grain and subsequently bread, they, in the Bible, they mean life. Connected to understanding of what, what is life, and this makes a lot of sense to us. We know that we, uh, as much as we would emphasize like personality and spirit and soul, like we are fleshly people. We have bodies that have to be fed, and we need our daily nourishment just to survive and live. And all of creation is that way. And it is part of God's design, His plan to remind all of creation that we are dependent on Him. And so the, the bread, the grain that we take in, it represents the life that God gives us. And that's an important distinction to make. Uh, the oil has significance. It, in the Bible, the oil, oil is often used to represent, uh, represent joy or provision. But very specifically in the Bible... Uh, oil represents the Holy Spirit. And there were certain people in the Bible that were uh, commanded to be anointed with oil. Uh, These would be priests, prophets, kings, uh, and others. When God wanted to signify that His Spirit was on a person, they would use this symbol of anointing their head with oil. And uh, so I, it's a great reminder that through this offering, it was a reminder that the Spirit of God was with them. Now, they had another uh, benefit. They had, uh, when this was given, they had the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night resting over the tabernacle, reminding them the Spirit of God was with them. Next, the frankincense. Frankincense has significance. Not only is it a pleasing aroma, which all the off- burnt offerings, everything burnt on the altar is always described to have, to give off a pleasing aroma to God. And so this will be a key part of that. Uh, but frankincense was connected to worship. In, uh, in the tabernacle, God had given Moses a very specific uh, recipe for the incense that they burned in the tabernacle that would rise up. And it wasn't for the worshipers. It was mostly for God. It was to be a pleasing aroma, rising up to God. And frankincense was included in that recipe. And we also see frankincense included at the worship of Jesus Christ when he was born. And uh, the magi from the east came and, to bring kingly gifts of tribute. And frankincense being one of those. And the salt it has significance. The, the, now, it's important for me to pause and say this. Some of these have very clear connections to Scripture and to meanings. Others are a little more obscure, and we don't fully understand. And even commentators and researchers, they're going to have differing ideas about the significance. We know this. God has a reason for everything he does. Uh, and even if we don't fully understand, uh, we can still... Uh, trust God in His meaning and purpose behind these things, uh, even if all it is is God's poetic nature coming out and the beauty of God on display. That's that's enough. We don't have to have everything tied to knowing every single answer. So so the uh, this is one that we we're kind of uh, doing our best to understand. That's the salt of the covenant. So the best way we can understand this is there are parts of the, both in the scriptures and extra-biblical sources that describe salt being used in the formation of a covenant between individuals and groups. There's, there's not a lot of description of what that means, how it happens, but it's it's mentioned a lot of times. And so it may have been uh, kind of this Eastern uh, use of salt. Now, salt be, salt is... Very common to us. And we've, we've talked about this even recently in the church. Salt so is very common to us. But in biblical times, and especially uh, ancient times, uh, it was extremely valuable. It was precious. It was, uh, of course, we know it is a, a, a necessity for our daily for our intake to have a healthy body. But your body needs salt. Um, so uh, it, we, we have a little disconnect from understanding from the understanding of salt in the scriptures with the commonality of salt today. But in some way, salt was a symbol here of the connection to the everlasting covenant between God and Israel. He says, as you're adding the salt in here, every one of these grain offerings is a reminder through the salt that you are connected to me through an everlasting covenant. And uh, I, I love... Uh, uh, that understanding there of the salt, just this seasoned with the covenant. The uh, the cooked offerings. I alluded to this earlier about how special these are. So you might think, well, isn't it easier just to put the flour together and take it, and why I go through all this trouble of cooked grain offerings? Well, most likely this is included. Uh, to help make sure worshipers of all economic levels could come and worship God in the same way. So uh, this flour that we're talking about and the ingredients to put together with the flour, they were precious, they were costly, they were valuable. And, and most likely, only the wealthiest could afford enough to kind of bring those as offerings in themselves. But instead of the, the, the poorer individuals having to say, oh, well, I guess that offering is just for the rich people. No, God made a way for all of his people to worship, regardless of their economic level. So they could take whatever small amount of of these fine ingredients that they could afford, even if it's such a small amount that it would look pitiful to put in a dish and bring to God on its own, they could then take that small amount and then they had other ways to give to God. They invested their time, their effort, their craftsmanship, their skill by forming it into uh, these baked goods or cooked goods. Any of you that are, that are bakers and love to bake, I bet when you're baking, it is not a chore or a task. It is something you're putting your heart into. You are enjoying it. You're putting part of yourself into it. It is a labor of love for those that, that you know will eat it and enjoy it. That's the idea behind these cooked offerings. We can't afford a lot, but we can put in what we have, and that is ourselves. We're putting that into these cooked offerings. So all all economic levels could bring a valuable gift to God and present it. And, And this is the most important part. Every one of those offerings were accepted equally. God's not giving favor to the wealthy through a bigger gift. He's accepting all equally with love and grace. And it's a beautiful thing about the grain offering. Now, there's significance behind the no yeast. Um, I like yeast in my bread. I bet you do too. But yeast in the Bible signifies sin and corruption. Jesus used it a lot, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. The, uh, the exodus and the, the Passover meal uh, requires the removal of yeast and the, and the the feast of unleavened bread, where the Israelites were very very uh, very dramatically and intentionally mo- remove all yeast out of their homes for the period of the feast, and all these things, uh, it's a sig- it's a it's a symbol of sin. Uh, we're not exactly sure why God chose this as a symbol of sin, except for uh, it changes the, the ingredients when you add it in. It it, it like creates. Uh, Almost like it becomes alive. Well, I mean, the organisms are alive, but microbi- microorganisms. But they uh, there's there's some way in which it represents uh, sin and corruption, and it could also be that immediately it starts to shorten the lifespan of the product and starts to decay, and so that might be part of it. The honey. Now, why no honey? So there's this is where I said some people have studied all of this, and then we come up with different ideas for why this is. Uh, it could be that uh, the honey was a catalyst for even natural yeasts that could be found in the flour. And so if God was allowing them to put honey in this, uh, these baked uh, and cooked grain offerings, maybe it would awaken some of the, the latent natural yeasts even in there. Uh, that's one idea. Um, but then there's this other idea that God is asking for an unembellished, very simple offering. He's not asking you to to add in the fruits and the nuts and the the, the fruit juices and the honey, the things that you would think would taste good, the things that are going to please your palate. That's not what God's asking for. He's asking for a very plain, simple, genuine offering, unembellished. Maybe that's behind it. We don't fully understand. But those are the significances. Now let's end with drawing the connections to our own lives and our own worship. Uh, I really like these two historical connections. When we think about the grain offering, uh, we see two examples of very similar offerings happening outside the tabernacle. Uh, First of all, Genesis 18 is when Abraham uh, and Lot had separated. Uh, Lot had moved off towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham was there kind of on a hill overlooking, and he and his whole group was there and he was uh, sitting at the entrance to his tent one day and three strangers appeared. And immediately he knew that these were messengers of God. In fact, it was as if the presence of God had come to visit him. And so he begged them to sit down under this shade tree and he would bring them water to wash their feet and he was going to go have a meal prepared and, and they could visit in his presence. And uh, they agreed. They sat down. He brought them water and they washed. He went and then he went to the tent. He told Sarah, his wife, he gave her this very specific amount. Get fine flour and knead it into unleavened cakes and bake it and we're going to bring it out to these. And then he went and prepared uh, a young goat to have cooked for them. And so it's this example of a time when very spontaneously but also almost arriving just out of the life of a worshiper, this kind of offering is brought and put before God. A very similar thing happened in Judges 6 when you have Gideon. He's, he's uh, kind of lowest in his family, and his family's kind of one of the lower families in the tribe. And uh, he's, he's out threshing the grain. So this would have been during the grain harvest. He's threshing the grain. He's kind of doing it uh, hidden because the Philistines nearby, they are oppressing his people. He's trying not to get caught. Uh, and there's grain taken away, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears and calls. And one, he starts making these big pronouncements to Gideon. As soon as Gideon finally realizes this is an angel of the Lord, he says, "I want to bring you an offering." And so he goes and he takes flour, the the grain, and he makes like these quick uh, loaves of bread for the angel. And he also kills one of the uh, the the oxen that he's. Uh, threshing the grain with and he makes this offering before the angel and uh, and the angel kind of tells him how to lay it out on this stone and and pour the the broth from the meat over it all and then the angel touches the staff to the stone and just like lights on fire and this pleasing aroma of this offering burning up goes up to God. It's this example of the the grain offering being included in this spontaneous offering To God's presence. And so I just love these connections where we see uh, the offerings uh, as a way to worship God. And so that brings us to this connection. What's behind the grain offering? Well, it's a heart of worship, as we've been saying, that includes gratitude. So as they're giving back to God, they're bringing it saying, Thank you, God, for your provision. Thank you for what you've done in my life. I have this to give because you've been active in my life. I have this to give because you have provided for me. Uh, this is also an expression of faith. Think about it. Uh, for them and for us, when we're bringing part of our resources, resources that we could feed our family with, resources we could improve the quality of our life with or pay our bills, we're saying, I trust my creator more than I trust in these resources to improve my life or to sustain my life. And where, where it's an act of faith uh, through that offering. And a, similarly, an act of dedication. So this, uh, this, this will be a very symbolic part of uh, offerings like this, free will offerings before God. Saying, I'm coming and I'm giving you this item But it is a symbol of me. I'm dedicating this to you as a way of saying, all that I have, all that I am, belongs to you. And this is how we know that this grain offering uh, means that. It's the same word in Hebrew, minka. It's the same word that's used all throughout the scriptures when people bring tribute to the king. Bringing tribute to the king is a symbol that says, we are yours. We are under your rule, your authority. But in this case, it's not forced. It's saying we're gladly recognizing that we're dedicated to you. We are under your rule. That brings us to this next connection for us, and that is that Jesus is our bread of life. Jesus referred to himself uh, in this way. I'm the bread of life. In fact, he's going to invite us. To, uh, to take him in through communion, that we feast on him as our bread of life. And even uh, where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, that literally translates to the house of bread. Jesus is our bread of life. We see the connection also in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus says that we are to pray, give us today our daily bread. And we we depend on God for our provisions. Now, remembering that this offering was, was a costly offering. For many, it would have been a sacrifice or a sacrifice of service to God. When we bring that kind of offering to God, it is showing how we value God. Uh, The quality of what we bring or the effort we put into it or the care that we put into our offering, this shows the value that we have for God. And I think that's really important. We also uh, have the opportunity to, uh, to enact this remembrance. Just as that salt was the remembrance of the everlasting covenant between Israel and God, Well, we have, every time we gather for worship here, we have the opportunity to remember our everlasting covenant with God through Jesus Christ. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Uh, When Jesus instituted that, he says, When you do this in remembrance of me, we're remembering that this is the new covenant in my blood. And so uh, I think that is a great connection for us. This next connection... um, Maybe is awkward sometimes to talk about. But just as that grain offering helped provide for God's servants, the, the Levites at the tabernacle, the offerings that we bring and give as part of our worship, they help provide for those who have dedicated their lives and their careers to serving God's people through the church. Uh, so there's provision for the leadership uh, uh, in the church and Paul makes this connection very clearly uh, in First Corinthians nine. He says, "Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel." And so, uh, it's, a, it's a very important, very practical connection for our church, and our church is very generous in this. And always has been to provide for those who work for the church through the offerings that have been given to God. Uh, And I want to point out that just even though we we see this kind of antiquated offering, the the grain offerings, and it's easy for us just to leave it there in Leviticus and not think about it too much. When we're invited to worship God through offerings Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a great place to think about that. But also in Hebrews 13, there's this idea that we want to continually celebrate God's provisions by, by uh, responding to his blessings. It says, Therefore, through Christ, let us continually op- offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share for God is pleased with such sacrifices. So the very way we live is free will offerings to the God who saved us. And so f- the final connection I want us to draw before we finish up is, is this idea of, of yeast and sin. When God invites worshipers to come to him, he he's, has a pretty high standard. God does not allow sin in his presence. And those Israelites, they were required to remove sin and corruption from their lives before they could enter into worship. That's why the burnt offering is there. It's to remind the uh, Israelites they must make atonement for their sins and be counted as clean. And then the, the, the grain offering follows that, that you, you respond to the atonement you get. Well, it's the same for us. We are in need of the Savior. And if we were to come to worship without acknowledging that, it's like coming and, and being ignorant of our sin. I want to read to you a, a quote from Alan Mosley. It says, Scores of statements in the Bible emphasize that God's people cannot offer acceptable worship to God if the way we're living is not acceptable to God. In other words, Don't come to worship and make a show of being right with God only to leave worship and go back to sin. That doesn't mean sinners are not welcome in worship. The difference between the people who offer right worship and those who don't is not that worshipers are not sinners. The difference is that right worshipers know they're sinners. They know they need God. They know they need atonement and salvation that only come from God in Christ. So all of us are invited in through Christ. We get washed clean, atoned for, and then we're free to worship God knowing we've been made right with him through Jesus. Let's think about these, these reflection points before we pray. When we think about this grain offering. It's, it, it should inspire us to say, how, how am I giving? What am I offering to God, both financially, of my time, of myself, of my life? What am I giving? Am I giving anything? That's a great place to start. And if you're not, I want to say God's inviting you. Not commanding, inviting. Come, worship me. Be dedicated to me. Be thankful to me. And if you are giving, we need to say, well, how's my heart in this? Some of us, Some of us might have grown up in a tradition that had very strict understanding of giving, and maybe it's made us bitter, or maybe it's made us resistant, or maybe you've been in a church that mishandled funds, and now you're reluctant to give, and you've got things to work through. Say, what's my heart behind giving? And that's important to to go back to the heart of worship and say, I do this not for man. I do this for God. We need to also say, am I giving my best, or am I giving my leftovers? This is really important. When, when we give to God, um, remember we said the gift reflects the way we value God. If, if we're just pulling together the scraps to throw something in God's direction, that, that's not worship. So let's, let's let our worship reflect the value we have for God. And to, to drive that point home to our hearts, I want to think of Mary Magdala, the night, just a few nights before Jesus was crucified, uh, she made a big offering in worship of Jesus. She poured out this very expensive, like insanely expensive perfume on Jesus. We know it was to anoint him for his burial. She made a spectacle of herself in front of the dinner guests. She was weeping out of love and worship. She wiped his feet with her hair uh, She did many things to express love and worship to God through Jesus Christ. She was ridiculed for that. She was looked down on. She was questioned. She was doubted, uh, accused of being wasteful. But Jesus' response was this. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. That is the heart of our worship and our offerings. Will you pray? Our great God, thank you for your atonement that comes to us through Jesus. Thank you for this uh, Lord's table that we're about to gather around just to remember this and commemorate this eternal, everlasting covenant you made with us through Jesus. And thank you that you've invited us now that we have been made clean to worship you, to give of ourselves, to give our gratitude, our dedication, our love, our joy to you. And I pray that our offerings will reflect that, offering all parts of ourselves to you. Lord, that you would be glorified, that we would be edified, and the name of Christ be proclaimed. So we pray that in his name. Amen.